Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your love and your goodness and your grace. Now, Lord, please give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are open, that your spirit may touch our lives and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. I want to talk today about what love is, but it's going to take me a long time to get to that. And there may be moments along the way where you may become despairing before I get there. I want to talk to you about what love is, but before I do that, I want to set up a context to explain why loving in theory is easy to agree to, but loving in reality can be so unbelievably difficult. I want to begin today by talking about cultures. And I start with two disclaimers. First of all, I am not a cultural anthropologist, so I may make some errors today in my analysis. I will try to keep my cultural analysis as shallow as possible so that I avoid any really serious errors, but I am not a cultural anthropologist. Neither, second disclaimer, neither am I a historian. I'm fascinated by history, and I've read or listened to many historical books relevant to my thoughts today, but again, I acknowledge I could be prone to error. Yet in light of those disclaimers, I want to begin by talking about cultures. Among other possible meanings, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines culture in this way, the customary beliefs social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. Also, the characteristic features of everyday existence, such as diversions or a way of life, shared by people in a place or time. And then it gives a couple possible examples, such as popular culture, you've heard of that, or southern culture, you've heard of that. A couple notes on this definition. Culture is never exactly what any particular individual in that culture might exactly want. Culture is a corporate experience, not an individual act. Let me give you an example. You may not like starting work at 8 o'clock in the morning, but you live in a culture where 8 o'clock is the start time for work. So it doesn't matter if you want to start at 10. If you want to keep your job, you'll be there at 8, won't you? Yep. Culture is loaded with conventions that enable individuals in close proximity, that's a key point, close proximity, to coexist peacefully without the need to constantly have to explain themselves. Have you noticed Sometimes it's hard to coexist with people peacefully when you're in close proximity. I noticed that. Let me give you an example of this. It is polite culture to ask someone you pass how they're doing. How you doing? It is not polite culture to respond by stopping them and telling them everything you're unhappy about. Right? How you doing? Fine. Boom, we're on our way. We don't have to explain to each other why we did that. We get it. It's culture. Any isolated, interdependent group will automatically form a culture fairly quickly, a process that over time leads the participants in that culture to experience something called belonging. 
An emotional state, very important for individual happiness. Just ask someone who is at odds with their culture, who doesn't feel as though they belong, how important belonging is. Now, let's keep building this. Because cultures tap so deeply into our emotions, any outside influences that come along seeking either actively or passively, these influences don't have to be intentionally hostile, but any outside influence that comes along either actively or passively to change our culture will generally be greeted with hostility and sometimes violence. The examples of this are legion, but let me give you one here for an example that we didn't invent. It's been going on for a long time. That angst you feel when your child is dating out of culture. You remember Fiddler on the Roof? Remember that about the the Jewish family in Russia? Tevia, the father, he can live with his oldest daughter marrying a Jewish boy who has little prospect for prosperity. He can live with it. He can live with his middle daughter marrying another Jewish boy who's been deported to Siberia. But he just can't let that last daughter marry a Russian. Tradition, right? Culture. You ever hear of the court case Loving versus the State of Virginia? There's a movie on that recently because there were laws in states that said you can't marry out of race. There's even a Bible text that you can use for that. Be ye not unequally yoked. Heard that one? You aren't going to marry a non-Adventist, are you? It's hard, isn't it? See, that really puts teeth in it, right? It's not just culture because they don't believe like us. And I really hope you won't because it'll make your life hard. But do you feel the angst? Let me take it a step further. I would even argue that a key explanation for much of the energy behind Islamic terrorism is very closely linked to the way that Western culture, and by that I mean defined primarily as American and European culture, by the way that Western culture has begun to do to Islam and the culture associated with Islam what it already did to Christianity, and that is leave it hardly recognizable anymore. Western culture is a colonizing culture even if Westerners never go there. And it tears other cultures down. Now, all of this cultural conflict could be so easily dismissed as just ignorant foolishness if only it were true that all cultures are inherently of equal value and validity. Now, that's a troubling statement. But think about it. Sharia law, Ten Commandments, U.S. Constitution, anarchy, take your pick. They're all about the same, right? No, they're not. That all cultures are of equal value and validity is a notion that has tried to assert itself as a needed corrective in recent history. Why? Well, primarily because of the persecutions and oppressions that have occurred when one culture has sought to impose its norms and opinions upon another culture that it deems inferior, or when one culture has held superiority as a primary cultural belief. Such was the case in the troubled and troubling history of European colonization in various parts of the world. But now, let's give the Europeans a break on one point. It's a little hard to not feel your culture is is superior when you encounter people that are cannibals. And then when one adds racial identity to the concept of cultural uniformity, the result in the world has too often been deadly. So what do you think? Are all cultures 
of equal value and validity. And don't answer that question out loud because that's a trap. It is a question which brings us to the immediate context that has sparked both mine and Pastor Bernie's thoughts for today, and that context has the name Charlottesville. Now, I want to encourage you to listen to Pastor Bernie's message. He does a fantastic Bible study on the subject of love. And it's the perfect accompaniment to what I want to tell you today. So I want to encourage you sometime, go online, download what he said today. You need to hear this. But now, back to what we're talking about here. On the offhand chance you somehow missed out on recent events in America, last Friday night and Sabbath, while we were going about the usual business of our Forest Lake Church cultures, and I say it that way on purpose, we'll get back to that, There was a confrontation brewing in the Virginia College town of Charlottesville where a much larger than anyone would want to think possible gathering of neo-Nazis and white supremacists were using the pretext of calls for the removal of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee as a valid basis for a rally to, as the rally's name stated, unite the right. Now, Before this worship service gets out of hand and we find ourselves consumed by the particulars of what unfolded last Sabbath in Charlottesville, let me just make this simple observation. It would be possible for us, the members of the Forest Lake Church, to become at least raucously, if not in fact violently engaged with one another over what happened in Charlottesville and what it means. And I say that based simply on your Facebook posts. We could come to blows. Now, having said that, let me also say this. No one in this congregation can or should in any way have any sympathetic regard for the views of neo-Nazis or white supremacists. And let me also state, I don't believe any of you actually do. And yes, I hear what some of you are thinking, how naive. Really? Do you think I'm naive? Well, maybe I am, but before you completely pass judgment on me, hear me out. I don't believe there are any true neo-Nazis or white supremacists in this congregation. Why do I say that? I say it because of what a true neo-Nazi or white supremacist is. Someone who doesn't just prefer to associate only with individuals of a certain race, but someone who actually believes it's wrong to associate with people outside of race. And to that end, I ask you, Would a true neo-Nazi or white supremacist ever allow themselves to be called a member of a congregation that welcomes blacks and Hispanics and Asians and Jews and whatever else into full membership and standing equal to them? No, they would not. So let's be clear on this point. This church is not a seething cauldron of neo-Nazis and white supremacists longing for the day when they finally take over and push everyone else out. But having said this, I likely still haven't fully diffused the perception that many may still have that I am naive. Let me now address that point. I said there are no true neo-Nazis or white supremacists in this congregation, and I stand by it. But having said that, please note carefully, I did not say that this is a congregation free of cultural bias. And just for fun, since this is all so fun, allow me to take this thought a step further. Not only is this not a congregation free from cultural bias, I would contend that in truth, myself included, there isn't anyone in this congregation without cultural bias. And again, before you immediately cast me onto the pile with President Trump as having said all sides are to blame, please hear me out. 
every Sabbath, we exercise our cultural bias based upon what time we walk through those doors. And we call our bias first service, the bridge, and third. And woe be unto us, the staff, if we allow the lame culture of first to linger too long into the bridge, or the culture of the bridge to taint the purity of third. Sometimes you all get a little angry when the bridge goes a little long. So let me just give you a feel for our cultural bias. Before first service, we play music. This is the kind of music we play before first. Ah, isn't that nice? It's so early, we don't really want to wake up yet. That's great. And we all have such a peaceful spirit. Okay, but then the bridge comes and something else happens. What happens when the bridge comes? Well, first of all, the lights go down. That can't even be appropriate, can it? Oh, what is that? And certain songs come on that should never be played in church. Can you believe we allow that in this same holy place where Will plays the organ for us? Some of you can't. That, my friends, is called cultural bias. And it's very difficult when we associate it with righteousness. Most of you don't attend all three services we hold here at the Forest Lake Church, but just ask any of us who do, all three services at this church have their own unique culture, filled with rituals and practices and expressions and expectations that must be followed or we will be getting yellow note cards in our office boxes with something on them other than words of encouragement and affirmation, (laughs) which is ironically the words written on the top of those yellow cards. Examples. Wear your suit jacket buttoned at third service. Yes, I've gotten notes. Don't wear a suit jacket at the bridge. They're a little more patient with me when I forget and accidentally wear it. If you come to first service, when the morning prayer ends, you immediately get up and sit in your seat. But if you come to third service, do not move until Will has finished his meaningful and reverent song after the prayer. And if you do it, we know you're not one of us. Culture. At first service, you better sing at least one hymn, but don't just do hymns. At the bridge, the platform had better be willing to conform itself to whatever the band needs to do that day, and Bernie better be ready to preach 15 minutes if that's all the time he gets, because we're going to do music as long as we want. Culture. And at third, every now and then we get queries. Is there any way we could get the drums off the platform during the service? That'd be good. The point I'm trying to make here is that any group given enough time will begin to develop a culture complete with norms and expectations. And once this occurs, any interaction with an alternate cultural reality will cause friction. We all have cultural bias. And it is at the point of contact of our inherent cultural biases that friction inevitably occurs. And friction is a problem, for it invariably produces heat unless there's something there to act as a lubricant. 1 John 4, verse 20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen, and He has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. One way that cultural friction is dealt with when it arises is power. 
And that is when oppression happens, as in, you will do it according to our culture and not according to yours. And that is a terrible thing when it comes to where a person is allowed to sit on a bus or who gets a chance at a promotion at work. But what about when it comes to the removing of historical monuments? Whose culture gets to win then? Well, obviously, we would say the culture with the moral high ground should win. And maybe we agree that this principle works well when King Jehu is killing the priests of Baal in the house of Ahab, or when Josiah is ridding Jerusalem of all the idols and the images and restoring the proper forms of worship. The Bible doesn't just condone these works, the Bible lauds these works. But what about when we're talking about the Buddhas of Bamayan? You ever heard of the Buddhas of Bamayan? Bamayan is a place in Afghanistan. We got a map here. There you go. It's just outside of Kabul. Maybe you heard this story. The Buddhas of Bamayan were built in a region of modern-day Afghanistan in around the 500s AD when Buddhism was prominent in the region. Now, it's kind of a dramatic scene. So there's this valley there, and there's these cliffs along the edge of the valley. And actually, in three places along the cliffs, there are Buddhas carved into the cliff face. Two of them are standing. One of them is sitting there. And they're really quite remarkable works. You see here a close-up of the, the largest one. That was pretty amazing work, and that was done back in the year 500. And these Buddhas were regarded internationally as, a, as an international heritage site, though because they're located in such a volatile area, nobody really knew about them or saw them much. I mean, nobody went to Afghanistan to see the Buddhas. It's just too hard to get there. When the Taliban took over Afghanistan, they determined quite accurately, we might have to confess, that the Buddhas were in fact idols of a false religion. And as such, righteousness demanded they be destroyed. I mean, you wouldn't want statues hanging around that commemorated a time when the region was besought with evil. If you sense a trap, you're not wrong. The world was outraged by this senseless act of vandalizing history in the name of ridding the land of symbols of evil. Here's what it looks like today. Much better, right? Well, I suppose that depends on who you ask. But enough beating around the casbah. Let's get to the elephant I just brought into the room. The ignition point for the trouble in Charlottesville last week was the planned removal from the campus of UVA of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, which probably leads many to ask the question, why are there statues in America to Confederates at all if the Confederacy was nothing but a vile rebellion for the sake of preserving the evil practice of slavery? It goes back to the history of how the war finally ended and the decisions made at that time that put the Union back together. There were those at that time who were very much against the notion of Confederate statues and honoring the so-called heroes of the South. These people were called radical reconstructionists. And just to put an ironic twist on it all, they were all members of the newly established Republican Party. Nearly all the Confederates were Democrats. Not only did the radical Reconstructionists want there to be no positive commemoration of Confederate soldiers and generals, they wanted all leaders from the South to be treated as traitors with the majority of the leaders tried and hanged for treason. And in addition, many of the more extreme in this group of firebrand northerners believed the people of the South had forfeited their rights to be considered Americans and that they should all lose their lands and the southern states should be colonized by northern soldiers who had fought the war who would take over the southern lands by means of land grants given by the government. 
These were proposals in Congress. But for better or for worse, and I suppose that is what we in this era are trying to decide, the radicals did not carry the day. Instead, the decision was made that the war would not be resolved on the grounds of good overcoming evil, but instead on the grounds of right prevailing over wrong. The decision was made that the Southerners, despite the rebellion, were still Americans, and that their hero generals in their battlefield slain, despite fighting for the wrong side, would still be considered worthy of honor and regard by both sides. It wasn't just the armies of the South that held General Robert E. Lee in high regard. And so, Southerners built statues to honor their heroes and even placed them in the Capitol building of the United States in Washington, D.C. And Southerners were allowed to fly their battle flag, the stars and bars, and still do to this day as anyone who travels I-75 can testify. And for 160 years, this compromise solution has held without too many incidents. So what has changed? I suppose the easiest way to say it is that there is now a new voice at the table, a voice that was not allowed to speak originally. And what is that voice? It's the voice of the slaves, or at least the voice of the descendants of the slaves, And theirs is a perspective that not even the radicals of long ago could have seen. The great agreement that enabled reunification of the states after the war was the belief that despite the war, we are all still Americans. It is as if they said, despite the 620,000 American deaths. Did you know that many people died in that war? 620,000 deaths, 2% of the population. Now, 620,000 is the total from both armies because since in the aftermath it was determined everybody was Americans, they counted them all. Despite the carnage and the despoiling we inflicted on one another, the conclusion was we're all still Americans. Now, let me put that 620,000 in perspective. That is more battlefield deaths than all the wars of America from the Revolution to Vietnam combined. That includes World War I and World War II. Or taken another way, one soldier died for every 6.5 black slaves in America at that time. The compromise between the two groups with voices in 1865 has held without much incident for 160 years, but the new voice at the table is saying something different than the two voices of the era past. The new voice isn't saying, despite all this conflict, we are all still Americans. The new voice, as I am able to perceive it, the voice of the descendants of the slaves, seems to me to be saying, why after all this conflict and all this time are we still not Americans? And so in this new reality... What do these statues mean? Well, I suppose that depends entirely upon who you ask. To the average northerner of European descent, or maybe better, non-southerner, it seems to me the statues are mostly just anachronistic, belonging to another time almost passed from memory, much more a historical curiosity than a point of contention. So the natural conclusion is a very passive one. Leave them up, take them down, whatever. Just stop making a fuss about it. To the average southerner of European descent, also in my opinion, the conclusion in this day is similar to that of the average northerner of European descent, but with a sympathetic skew towards leaving history alone if for no other reason than aesthetics. 
But there is also a sizable minority of Southerners of European descent who still feel very strongly about these symbols of the past and still do not feel entirely reconciled to all the implications of multiculturalism, though they all wholeheartedly pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, one nation under God, they will say very loud. A group that proudly stands and removes their Bass Pro Shop hat at the playing of the national anthem while taking offense at anyone who does not stand. To them, the removal of the statues is a violation of the terms of the reunification of the states, though they likely wouldn't be able to express it that way. And then there is the voice of the descendants of the slaves. And to the extent I can discern their voice, to them these statues, and the stars and bars as well, are symbols of hate and evil, like an altar of Baal sitting on the temple grounds in Jerusalem. And while I don't claim to understand this all perfectly, I would at least assert that these attempts at generalizing the various views would explain well the road to Charlottesville and the responses or lack thereof and the misunderstanding of the responses and lack thereof in the aftermath. The average northerner of European descent would likely respond with cautionary words, failing to see how there can be such a fuss over a bunch of stupid statues. In most cases, their response has been silence. The average southerner of European descent will likely quietly assert that a more rational process should be followed before statues are removed, and we shouldn't just take them down in a fit of emotion or rage. And then they might try to suggest that this current fad of demanding removal is at best a Don Quixote-type attempt to cleanse the hurts of history through essentially meaningless acts. The Southerners who feel strongly, however, will want to push back and will break out their Confederate flags and fly them proudly from the back of their pickup trucks as they drive through town. And the ones who see these statues as constant reminders of how they have always been outsiders, are still outsiders, and probably will always be outsiders, will see the responses of the other groups and want to weep. Four views each with a built-in cultural bias, though to say that about the group that weeps is to risk twisting the blade that causes the pain. Four views, grinding against each other, creating enough friction to tear us apart as Americans and as members of the Forest Lake Church. I will get to us in a moment, but first one more comment about America. It is at the point of grinding when it is clear that reasonable people do not see things eye to eye, is there anything harder for us to accept than that reasonable people can fail to see eye to eye? When we reach that point, when reasonable people do not see things eye to eye, it is at this point of friction and heat that neo-Nazis and white supremacists arise. Couple points here. There have always been neo-Nazis, they haven't always had that name, but there's always been neo-Nazis and white supremacists in America. Sometimes there's been lots of them. But I believe it is a fallacy to suggest their numbers are growing in our day. Mostly these people live in the shadows because nobody else except for themselves believes them to be acceptable. But they come out whenever they sense an opening, whenever they see a crack. And if everything goes just right for them, they don't get immediately beaten back into their holes. For the reasons I mentioned above, the growing trend of removal of Confederate symbols from the public square has given these hate groups, and I say hate group because hate has become the most evil word we can use in this day because we took sin out of the language because that implies God's involvement, and we don't really want that in the cultural sphere anymore. So, so hate is our ugliest word now. The removal of these symbols 
has given the hate groups an opening. And unfortunately, the way things played out in Charlottesville with counter-protesters showing up, conflict breaking out, and an insatiable news media that makes stars out of anyone despicable enough to cause outrage, the improbable has happened. Instead of being dismissed with rolled eyes and denounced for their idiocy, these purveyors of a sinful doctrine of racial inequality have managed to appear to the eyes of some almost sympathetic characters. Over the top for sure, but still, did you see how they spit in his face? And in contrast to some, the movements to remove Confederate symbols as nothing more than, has, has become viewed as nothing more than politically correct race baiting. And because of this outcome, many who should have made statements of outrage or solidarity have been muzzled. Others have been emboldened to push back even more aggressively at the perceived assaults on Southern heritage, and the net result is it's caused the ones feeling oppressed to feel even more isolated, even more oppressed, and even more despairing. They pushed on the crack, and it opened. And for the hurt and despairing ones, in their probably justifiable outrage, is my cultural bias showing enough in that statement? Do you hear that? It is simple enough to pile all three groups of European-descended Americans onto the neo-Nazi white supremacist pile if they don't very quickly and with the proper words decry white supremacy and denounce any who would resist the removal of the symbols of the supremacists, otherwise known as Confederate memorials. It's almost funny to watch how fast politicians fall all over themselves to try to say all the right words. And in this context, we all showed up together for church today. Happy Sabbath. Culture, right? 1 John 4, verse 20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. I'm not trying to solve America's problems today. I'm trying to shepherd this flock. This flock that has made the intentional decision to be diverse. You know what diverse means? Diverse means reasonable people who don't always see eye to eye. And because of that intentional decision, this flock has at least all four of those groups I mentioned before, if not a few more. You see, if we weren't intentionally diverse, My job would seem a lot easier today. I don't know that it'd be right, but it would seem easier. If we were a traditional black American church, and let me just say, if you've ever preached in a traditional black American church, that is fun. It's a lot like driving a sports car. It's just so responsive. It's amazing. If we were a traditional black American church, my job would be easy. I just rally everyone who would be up to speed on this issue for sure around a retelling of the dangers associated with the history of oppression and then call everyone to a united action to stand against what feels like a shifting tide in America away from equality and towards a new era of enhanced racism. Or if we were a conservative all-white congregation, my job today it would be a lot easier. I'd have a couple options. I'm not saying it's right, but I'd have these options. One would be completely ignore the issue 
and focus on more important things like, we have a building fund and I hope you will be sure, right? Or maybe something Paul wrote. Or if I wanted people to think I was at least aware of what's going on in, a, in an all-white conservative congregation, I could give token acknowledgement of the ugliness by disparaging in general white supremacists, but knowing full well, and understand this is a truth, knowing full well the majority of the people in the church are not on the brink of becoming neo-Nazis. They're not. And as such, there would be little to gain from warning them not to be Nazis and fixating on a story they don't really want to talk about. Or if we were a liberal white congregation, my job would be easy. I'd just turn everything into a diatribe against Trump and all conservatives, and then maybe throw in a Bible text or two, like this one. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And He has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So here's the deal as I understand it. Some of you showed up today with Charlottesville burning in your hearts. You didn't know if I would mention it, and you weren't sure you would agree with me even if I did, and you're still not sure. Some of you showed up today aware, but you were hoping I wouldn't bring it up. Some of you showed up happily oblivious, and in truth, you'd like to just go home now. (laughs) Well, be patient. We're almost done. What we are trying to accomplish in the Forest Lake Church is, in truth, impossible or at least impossible in our own strength. We are attempting to be a fully functional, fully loving, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-stylistic, even multi-theologically specific community that is more unified by a love for each other than we are divided by a fundamental disagreement on various points. We will never find unity in a diverse community by agreeing on every point. We can't get there from here. And given this truth, know and be convinced of this point. Our greatest challenge is not to finally all come to agreement. Our greatest challenge is to love one another even though we know we will never all finally come to agreement. First John 3, verse 11, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. We know that we have passed from death to life, because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Okay, clear points. White supremacy is sin. Any claim of ethnic supremacy is sin. To hate is, in God's eyes, equivalent to murder. And to live in hate is to be dead. But to love is to be alive. So how do we know what love is? Finally, we made it. 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And that goes for all of us. 
And that means every group in this church I mentioned and all the ones I didn't mention. What does love look like? Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, theory, but with actions and in truth. What does it look like? It looks like pity and kindness and mercy and patience and giving one another the benefit of the doubt instead of building walls and defenses against each other. It looks like compassion over defensiveness, concern for the other over winning the point, doing everything I can in the moment to bring the experience of belonging to my brother or sister in the Forest Lake Church who may be feeling on the outside. So the vision of this church, the vision elements of this church, the GPS, we haven't talked about that in a while, but the GPS, passion for God, passion for people, passion for service. It's what this is about. By loving God, we are enabled to love one another and serve one another. I would love to see such an attitude pervade every sphere of our lives, but long before I start worrying about what's happening out there, I need to be convinced we're getting this right in here. So how do we end? Here's what I want to do. I want to talk specifically right now to those of you who would self-identify as primarily of European descent. Now, what is that in this place? Because maybe for some of us that's okay. So I got German and I got English and I got Irish and Scottish. So okay, yeah. But who else has got just that? So if you're Hispanic, I don't know. Figure out what you want to do. It's too hard to call it. But here's what I want to do. To those of you who know you are, I'm going to read a statement. And if you agree with that statement when I'm done, I want you to stand with me in affirmation of those words. Okay? Here it is. I don't support the sinful views of neo-Nazis and white supremacists, and I believe everyone has equal right and standing before God and standing in this church. All who believe in Jesus are my brothers and sisters, and I love you. If that's you, stand with me now. Okay, now I want to talk to all of those who maybe only have a little bit of European in them or however much. And here's what I want to say to you. And if you can agree to this, I want to invite you to stand. I will not require you to fully understand my pain as the basis for my love for you. This is a hard request. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and I love you too. Can any of the rest of you join us standing after those words? Now, it is our duty to try to understand each other's pain and to try to make sure this is a place where everyone feels like they belong. And sometimes that's going to mean swallowing your point 
that you're pretty sure you're right on for the sake of love. But let's be clear. There is no place in this church for persecution based on race, based on style, based on ethnicity. Because we have chosen to be a diverse people that reveal the love of God through our lives even when we can't in our humanity agree. Friction. The love of Jesus is the lubricant that changes friction into the people of God. So, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So, beloved, let us love one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us because this is impossible. But by your grace, all things are possible. Lord, help us to find unity in making this a place where anyone can belong who has committed their life to Jesus Christ. And help us to grow, every one of us, in our ability to see each other and to understand each other's hurts and pains and to show mercy and to speak words of comfort and not to build walls, but to reach out to each other in love. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.